Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and to our podcast channel, New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and it's a delight today to be talking with historian Piotr Puchalski, who has written a book called Poland in a Colonial World Order, Adjustments and Aspirations, 1918 to 1939. Uh, This is just out, and it's published uh, by Routledge and the Routledge Histories of Central and Eastern Europe. So I'm really excited, um, Piotr, to talk to you today, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, This is really an honor. Thank you for this invitation. So a little bit about um, Dr. Puchalski. He has a PhD, and he is an assistant professor at the Institute of History and Archival Studies of the Pedagogical University of Kraków, Poland. Dr. Kuchowski's interests include Polish, French, British, and American diplomacy, as well as Western colonialism, totalitarian regimes, and modern ideologies. About the book, Poland in a Colonial World Order, is a study of the interwar Polish state and empire building project in a changing world of empires, nation states, dominions, protectorates, mandates, and colonies. Drawing from a wide range of sources spanning two continents and five countries, Piotr Puchalski examines how Polish elites looked to expansion in South America and Africa as a solution to both real problems such as industrial backwardness and perceived issues such as the supposed overrepresentation of Jews in quote-unquote liberal professions. He charts how, in partnership with other European powers and international institutions such as the League of Nations, Polish leaders made attempts to channel emigration to South America, establish direct trade with Africa, expedite national minorities to faraway places, and tap into colonial resources around the globe. Kuchowski demonstrates in his book the intersection between such national policies and larger processes taking place at the time, including the internationalist turn of colonialism and the global fascination with technocratic solutions. So I want to get right to your motivation, if I may, because this is the classic question that I I like to ask if there are personal stories or if it's an intellectual project, um, 
Piotr, I, I would really um, like our listeners to perhaps to hear your voice and, and what drew you to researching this wonderful book. Of course. So there wasn't one single factor that I could pinpoint to as the main inspiration. However, as you mentioned, uh, I do have a family connection to colonialism. We might uh, argue my great uncle, uh, Franciszek, during World War II, he was uh, uh, forced to leave Poland at the age of uh, 16 uh, to work in the mines of Western Germany. Then uh, after World War II, um, when you know the Americans uh, and the British and the French uh, came in, he boarded a ship for Australia from where he went to the Manus Islands, which was at the time, uh, I believe, um, a League of Nations mandate, uh, still a part of New, Gu- New Guinea, which was the League of Nations mandate, um, or, or on the way uh, to becoming a League of Nations, uh, excuse me, a United Nations trustee uh, territory. Uh, so I, that, that really provoked me to think about uh, internationalist colonialism, uh, territories being ruled by nation states, empires, but at the same time being under this uh, larger umbrella um, of uh, international institutions. Uh, and then I also came upon uh, some online trivia articles about Polish quote-unquote adventures uh, in Liberia and Angola during the interwar uh, period. So this was uh, towards the end of my um, bachelor's uh, studies, undergraduate studies uh, at NYU. Uh, and these articles were making sort of shallow arguments about um, these uh, acts of, you know, Polish colonialism um, and being just uh, ridiculous sort of products of anti-Semitism, nationalism, which of course was to a large extent true, but there was this deeper a story that I soon discovered about um, the Polish so, so-called colonial actions um, actually, you know, um, connecting uh, or, um, you know, referencing uh, broader colonial ideas about, you know, joint colonial rule, internationalist colonialism, you know, liberal colonialism, uh, and so on. So, so that's sort of the um, intellectual um, interest that that the story peaked in me. I, I have a I have a lot of questions because I'm so fascinated in your book in the seven chapters by how you shift this colonial history and colonial turn into real case studies and, and projects of, of Polish colonial empire. So I wonder if you might say a few words to our listeners who, who might not be familiar with all of the historiography the extent to which cultural and intellectual historians such as Larry Wolf, his work Inventing Eastern Europe, 1994, or Ava Thompson, I remember reading her work, Imperial Knowledge on Russian Lit and Colonialism, the extent to which you abide or maybe don't abide by their framework. What what, what do you see as, as interesting in the way that you conceptualize the colonial turn and these actual test cases from 1918 to 1939? It's a big question. Right. So uh, you mentioned Larry Wolf, of course, his uh, famous uh, classic uh, work, Inventing Eastern Europe. Of course, after um, Larry uh, came uh, to the Rova around the same time, uh, uh, many, many other scholars who pointed um, out that Eastern Europe, uh, basically since the Age of Enlightenment, was uh, this semi-Oriental foil 
for Western Europe, for Western philosophers, Western thinkers, Western dictators later on, of course, uh, if we talk about the 20th uh, century. So uh, they um, drew our attention to the fact that perhaps Eastern Europe can be seen uh, in, in, in this post-colonial lens. And of course, um, recent uh, studies um, from even the last uh, five or 10 years um, have elaborated on this um, and have shown all the complexities in which uh, Poles, Czechs, Hungarians uh, throughout history, uh, throughout modern history have acted as both colonizers uh, and victims of a sort of colonialism or colonization. Um, I'm thinking of Larry uh, Urania uh, Valerio. I'm also thinking of uh, my advisor from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Catherine Ciancia. Um, and we can talk about um, her work uh, a bit later. So I am trying to complement this in a way uh, and show the ways in which um, Poles were actually inspired by their own post-imperial status to carry out what they themselves called colonial policies. And um, I, I think I think that's a, it's a great point to begin talking about your sources because I, I see so many interesting things interesting things happening with how you actually begin to tackle this this project um, and look at geography and commercial um, orientation. So I, I would guess there are many aspects to this, a civilizing mission that is economic and political or imperial or national. So introduce us, if you can, to some of the sources that you've begun to collect and languages and archives and so on. Uh, of course, of course. Um, so my source base um, is quite diverse. Uh, in the first place, I look at uh, accounts, uh, memoirs, uh, diaries uh, of uh, the people who are involved in these settlements and commercial projects. Uh, and if you look at sort of the structure of my book, you will see that um, the first um, area of interest was South America, in particular, this, this Brazilian, Argentinian, Paraguayan borderland. Uh, and um, there, um, the Polish state, but also the, sort of this uh, collection of Polish institutions allied to the state, uh, wanted to create um, a, a center of, uh, mm, of settlement where Poles would not assimilate, where they would act as commercial agents, uh, where they would, uh, you know, um, so more loyalty to sort of the mother country, the metropole, Poland, than to uh, the hosting uh, nations. And uh, I um, unfortunately could not find too many uh, archival material, um, meaning diplomatic papers, diplomatic correspondence, or even sort of institutional correspondence related to uh, these projects. So I had to resort to, again, um, memoirs, uh, you know, diaries, uh, letters even, right? Um, so... Um, so that was the, mm, mm, the that was sort of the social history aspect of my work, uh, we might um, say. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I, I did look at um, uh, the diplomatic stuff in Warsaw, the Central Archive of Modern Records. Uh, I also uh, traveled to to Berlin, uh, to to Paris, to Aix-en-Provence, where the French Colonial Archive is. Uh, um, and of course, to London, to New York, and to um, uh, Stanford to look at the expat um, Polish um, archival collections as well. 
uh, and I um, and I did this to acquire you know different perspectives on the Polish um, actions, the Polish endeavors. You know, um, obviously the um, ter territories with which the Poles uh, dealt with um, during this period were under uh, the, the dominance of, of colonial empires, the British, the French, uh, uh, the Germans had a lot of influence. So I um, I wanted to uh, to get their perspective. Mm -hmm. And so for our listeners, I, I want to just say that there are seven chapters to the book. So um, we'll cover as much of this as we possibly can. The first chapter is Emigrants into Colonists. The second is Between Periphery and Core. The third is European Solidarity. The fourth is Prometheus Bound. The fifth is Reforming the Wilsonian System. I, I particularly like this as a historian of, of Maps and Wilson. Um, the sixth is useful abroad, unwanted at home. And the seventh is called the last resort. And, and I would urge people simply to read the, the whole book and, and also the afterword covering the period into World War II. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions, uh, if I may, Piotr, about Brazil and, and some of the work that you do in, um, as you say, looking through memoirs, but also kind of trying to trace Polish colonialism as a project, to what extent do you actually see the Polish consulars and the, the consular network diplomats becoming in, involved in places like, like Brazil? I mean, in talking about some of the, uh, the areas that you mentioned, how, how are they actually envisioning the places where they're trying to ship Poles. In other words, where they're encouraging emigres to, to leave and depart for a better life. And, and I guess this would include the, the sources you've collected at Archivum Aknovich um, or Narodowe Archivum Cifrowe, the sort of like uh, general things. But, but perhaps tell us if, if you can how this almost obsession, it seems to me, was, was developed um, for the interwar period. How did they envision Brazil? So they envisioned Brazil as this pre-modern territory, um, pre-modern in the sense of economy, but also in the sense of civilization uh, and civilization in quotation marks. Uh, of course, they uh, saw an abundance of land. They saw a sparse population um, and they saw um, a lack of strong industry. And these were three components that uh, particularly pleased them because uh, they were concerned with uh, emigration from the Polish lands. Um, especially in the 1920s, um, there was this resurging wave of emigration, Polish landless peasants mostly, but also some sort of um, towns, uh, town dwellers were leaving uh, the Baltic shores for North America until the mid-1920s when the U.S. sort of imposed uh, immigration restrictions and for South America. Uh, and these Polish um, statesmen, uh, elites, they want, they they knew that they couldn't really stem this, or and they were not even willing to do so because uh, they did not want to introduce a full agricultural reform that would fix some of these land problems, land hunger. Uh, they wanted to channel this immigration, and they they thought that again, South America was a place uh, that was first of all still open to Polish immigration. Um, and it was a place where 
peasants would not easily assimilate. They could perhaps re resist assimilation well, um, and a place where they could acquire land uh, and where on this land they could grow certain raw materials such as cotton, such as uh, even rubber in some places uh, that could uh, be shipped to Poland at lower prices. Uh, so, so this will, you know, generate some economic profits um, uh, for for Poland for the Polish industry, which was uh, uh, considered uh, undeveloped by by the same Polish right. elites. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And and so maybe if this would be a good moment to to get out of just talking about one country. So, which are the countries that that you actually began with, and which are the countries that that you finished with. And, and here I'm, I'm talking not just about Latin America or South America, but ultimately the kind of research that you do um, for, for, say, Angola. What, what, I mean, which are the countries where you found an abundance of sources? And I guess what changed from beginning to end, if you can answer that? Right. So um, the best documented uh, Polish um, colonial action to use the language of the contemporaries um, uh, is the, um, the mission to Liberia because it involves so many um, players in terms of states in, in terms of uh, sort of educated uh, people who could leave sources behind. Um, so I, I started with Liberia, but of course um, I needed to trace the source of this Polish colonial idea uh, to even understand how this uh, Polish mission to Liberia uh, came about. What inspired it? Was it pure opportunism uh, because Liberia sort of asked for Poland's help or was it, uh, or was there sort of a, mm -hmm. right. So uh, I actually um, transitioned to researching Brazil and uh, I uh, went back as far as uh, the end of the 19th century. Uh, and again, this idea of uh, um, pre-modern uh, land preserving this, this primordial Slavic Polish pioneering nature manifested itself to me in, in the sources from, from the period and in, in, this, in these memoirs, but also propaganda leaflets um, released, published by certain Polish, um, Polish institutions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question to me as, as someone who's researched the Paris Peace Conference and, and with my work on the treaty making and Eugenius Romer and some of the geographers, because I, what I'm fascinated by is how you see both official channels and, and unofficial channels intersecting through the 1920s. And, and I guess th this is definitely a response to the quotas, as you say, that are introduced in 19, 1923, 1924 in the United States against immigration um, but I, I wonder if you could say, Piotr, a few words about um, how how this develops before the the Piłsudski coup, for lack of a better term, in 1926. So, who who are then the lobbyists, um, if you will, the advocates, the pundits? Um, can you give us some names and and how they're kind of pushing for these colonial trading outposts? I, I mean, I think of in many ways, like Gazeta Świateczna, right? Świateczna for, for Cameroon in Poland. But maybe there are other examples that where you can see this this kind of unofficial 
and official colonialism. How, how do you conceptualize that? Right. So the actors responsible for really initiating these settlement projects or even projects of reinforcing existing clusters of immigrants um, are, not, are, are never um, completely cut off from the Polish state. They're always employed in some form. They're always in some form involved with uh, the state building project in Poland. However, um, before Piłsudski's coup d'etat, they're struggling to hear their voices heard. Um, and being heard is difficult for them for multiple reasons. Governments are constantly changing. Uh, you know, the, 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 the situation is unstable. Uh, also, the economic um, situation um, is, uh, you know, far from perfect. So um, just to give you an example, this... Um, a mm, very important figure, which I uh, mentioned throughout the book, uh, Kazimierz Warchałowski, um, was uh, a landowner uh, and uh, worked for this institution called um, the Emigration Office, um, but only for a very br brief period of time because uh, because he, he he was soon fired, he fell out of favor, uh, so he needed to right, so he needed to resort to. Um, finding uh, sponsors for his uh, Peruvian project um, elsewhere, outside of, uh, you know, official government uh, channels. Mm. So, so, so these people before uh, 1926, but really 1930, are sort of floating around and transitioning between one Polish institution um, and another. So, um, so this is really... Um, a drawback to uh, to the Polish colonial immigration uh, policy um, pre-1926, but again, even pre-1930. So the so the state policy only consolidates the state policy vis-a-vis -vis, um, South America and Africa only consolidates um, around the year 1930 when certain activists and the government, the Sanatia government, uh, come together and reach some kind of a consensus. Because there's also sort of a tug of war between uh, some right-leaning right um, individuals, groups, and the Sanatia before 1930. So it's really the Great Depression, um, you know, the, the market crash in 1929 that sort of serves as an impulse to, um, uh, to unite and to create a common front um, when, when it comes to, you know, colonial policies. Mm -hmm. And it, might you say a word also about the relationship between other European colonialisms? I, I'm really fascinated in how you trace this epistolary network of, of letters and communiques and exchanges really between um, delegates. I, I mean, I took note of, of the Romer family, obviously, but people like Jan Pierwowski, the Polish delegate in Madrid. I mean, how, how would you say the... English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, German, other colonial um, governments are, are responding to Polish aspirations through the 20s when they begin to catch wind of, of what, what they're doing. Is, is there a general pattern or do you have to really go by e each um, sort of set or series of, of letters and projects in different countries? How, how do you read that? Uh, right. So uh, the European empires are not really concerned with, um, quote unquote, Polish colonialism in the 1920s, because it's really emigrant colonialism that um, these 
state allied Polish institutions such as the Immigration Office are practicing. Uh, it's about reinforcing these clusters of immigrants um, in the Paraguayan, Argentinian, Brazilian borderlands. Uh, then toward the late 1920s, it's about creating additional settlement. And that's when this uh, Peruvian project by Warchowski uh, comes in place. But of course, the Great Depression is a watershed moment. Um, exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. It, because, well, because it forces industrialization in South America. Uh, you know, you have, uh, of course, the phenomenon of price scissors. Um, raw materials are becoming very cheap. Um, so exports are falling uh, in Brazil, to some extent in Argentina. They, they cannot export as much, so they need to use these raw materials internally, and that sort of um, leads to greater industrialization. It also leads to uh, autocrats such as Getulio Vargas coming to power in Brazil. Uh, and these, the, the, this new regime um, it does not want... Um, consolidated, homogenous Polish or German or Italian settlements on its territory um, in Brazil. Uh, the, so, so, so the Polish aims and uh, the Brazilian sort of state building aims um, are at loggerheads starting in 1930. Um, this, so, so Vargas introduces these immigration restrictions. Um, uh, also, um, the, the Brazilians are beginning to control the flow of capital more. Um, so not only is reinforcing new settlements becoming more difficult for, for Poles, but also uh, creating new ones. Uh, so so this, this idea of uh, you know, acquiring uh, cheaper raw materials from Brazil or from Argentina uh, is starting to fall apart um, in, the, in the early 1930s. And this is precisely the moment at which a subgroup of colonial activists, uh, especially the geographers such as Apollonius Zarista, um, but also Gustav Orjidreser, who is uh, who had studied geography and commerce earlier, uh, they begin thinking about Africa, um, and they uh, they realize that using regular people, peasants, uh, town dwellers, uh, as colonists is unrealistic. These people are leaving Poland for work, for a better life. Zachled uh, them, right, after bread. They're not interested in, in, in being conquerors, in being pioneers. Um, so this institution that emerges uh, and, uh, and integrates earlier institutions, the Maritime and Colonial League, Liga Morska i Kolonialna, under the leadership of Orlich Drescher, um, and now advocates for very limited pioneering settlements uh, in Angola, uh, in Cameroon, even though that project never really materializes. Um, it's, it's, so it's about trade, it's about commerce, it's not so much about channeling immigration anymore. Uh, so this is a transition and adjustment that takes place as a result of the Great Depression. But of course, uh, to your question, um, there are more adjustments to come. Because in Angola, initially, um, initially the Portuguese um, are very inviting. Uh, they uh, they make overtures to the Poles. They uh, they need investments during the and any sort of um, well-off Pole um, who's willing to emigrate to Angola is welcome. Um, however, um, you know, uh, a year or two later, uh, the Portuguese under Salazar are also starting to become not so much of the Poles in Angola, but of the Germans. 
because mm, the German that's a great point to, yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. because because the german uh government you know the Weimar republic uh is using um german agents uh with polish or Catholic passports to infiltrate angola and this creates uh an excuse for salazar to uh to basically uh, impose uh, new restrictions on on immigration and as a result of that but they also suffer as a result of their own uh because um the legal the maritime and colonially commits a mistake a blunder it's it doesn't really control who Poland for angola so the uh, the people who leave are these rich say aristocrats such as zamoyski, yeah, zamoyski. zamoyski. <laughs> i was just gonna right. ask about the zamoyski family yeah can you oh, can you course. say a few words about their their whole year africa um fantasy i, I mean I, I like how you draw the connection and this this i think is in your chapter three or four between the zamoyski family fantasy and and um Zarichta's ideas about parana and, and peasants and their modernity or anti-modernity and backwardness and so forth i mean how how did you actually stumble into this zamoyski project I, I love the story that you told about the chevrolet truck and the plots of land and and clearly what they're what they're doing i think after 1929 is a project that involves development or correct me if i'm wrong i mean how how do you actually see this whole old schlachta Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth family getting involved in these places? No, of course. So uh, this is uh, this is exactly my point. There is this contrast between what Zarechta wants to do, um, locate peasants uh, and other groups in sparsely populated uh, areas, uh, and what Zamoyski wants to do, which is sort of a modernizing project. It's, it's a project that uh involves declasse schlachta declasse aristocrats becoming entrepreneurs in africa uh so so, so it's, not, it's about developing africa of course to the benefit of the poles right of the europeans uh it, it's building sort of these huge uh latifundia but also uh some uh, some uh, processing plants for coffee and for other raw materials um and, and these people and his uh uh, accomplices, his allies, um, Zygmunt Gebetner and others, um, they don't like the Sanatia. They don't like right, what they call, right. um, they don't like what they call, uh, you know, Polish left wing socialist debauchery, um, decadence. Receive decadence. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, so, so they don't really want to work with the Maritime and Colonial League. Um, so even Escher, um, again, the leader of the league at the time, is somewhat in line with their idea of, of building uh, modern trading posts in Africa, uh, even though, again, ideologically at that time, somewhat aligned, um, Zamoyski still does not trust the Polish state. There, there's this uh, dissonance. Um, so, 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 yes, so, so between sort of the internal divisions of the Polish settlers in Angola and suspicion about any foreigners um, in Portuguese uh, territories, uh, the um, uh, is essentially abandoned. Uh, the Poles tried to revive it later in the 30s, but uh, but basically it's over in the in the mid 30s. Um, 
and the Maritime and Colonial League understands why it happened. Um, and uh, it adapts a different strategy in Liberia. So um, if you like, yeah. we can talk about that. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I haven't asked questions about race, and I definitely want to focus on um, that in Liberia, Haiti, and, and Ethiopia. So, you know, you're, you're speaking in many ways, I think, about actions in the plural and, and not just one, but actually, as it turns out, multiple projects in multiple countries, which which represent this surge, if you will, toward Polish Eurafricanism or maybe Pan-Africanism. So I, I guess my, my question here, you know, covering a lot of the scholarship that's been written about this period from the mid-20s to the, to the 1930s, what, what is your intervention here? I mean, what exactly do you think is, is novel or, or what are you finding in this greater, bigger story successes or failures about the Polish action projects in places like Liberia, Haiti, and, and Ethiopia? Is it, is it adding to this a story of race and racism and colonial operation? Or, or what do you think is the main line? Well, I, I think that one of the contributions is showing how victims can become perpetrators in a way, um, and how victimhood instead of leading to uh, greater morality, can actually, uh, you know, lead to this perpetuation uh, of, uh, of a certain pattern, right, which is, which is colonialism. Um, but I also um, underline the coexistence of different colonial systems uh, um, during the interwar period, right? Because Paul sort of tried to navigate between state-based colonialism, uh, in um, the, the Portugal uh, parts of Africa, Portuguese parts of Africa, um, internationalist colonialism, which is what Liberia is uh, fighting against, uh, imperialism, a sort of capitalism, which uh, which also affects Liberia um, and Haiti, right? Um, so, uh, so, so, so again, I, I, I try to show that this order uh, consisted of many systems uh, and it was uh, in constant flux uh, and it was but again it permeated all sort of independent countries uh, that had uh, sovereign foreign policies at the time because we, we never think of eastern europe as interacting with colonialism um, apart from sort of this um, uh, internal colonialism that Catherine Ciancia and others write about. So, so, so I really, I really want to show that this wasn't just about you know within Europe. This was global. Mm-hmm. And I guess I really have to ask you what what happens after Pilsudski, but but also for that matter after 1933 or maybe 1936. You have an entire chapter devoted to um, Wilsonianism and and the intersection of Polish colonial policy with the League of Nations. Perhaps you could say a few words about that. And I'm very interested, Piotr, <laughs> and for all of our readers, if you can tell us about Yusuf Beck. Um, and like, again, you know, this turn between Beck's bilateralism toward unilateralism or maybe away from multilateralism. These are two separate questions, really, based on two separate chapters. But um, this is, a, again, a way, if you can, to talk about the shift that happens in the mid to late 1930s. What, what is your take on that? 
Right. Uh, so, so let me go back to Angola because uh, the concept of your Africa and um, let me unravel that. So it, it was this idea that Europeans should work together to exploit Africa, essentially. Um, that there should be this European solidarity, which is why um, that is the title of uh, one of my chapters. Um, and uh, this was, of course, a fleeting idea because, as I mentioned, uh, the Portuguese under Salazar um, were not interested, really. Uh, they thought it was too risky. They, 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 they realistically assessed the situation and noticed that there were too many divisions among Europeans to, um, to really attain this, this ideal, because for Africans, this was far from ideal, of course. Um, and, and then um, once the Polish elites realized that Angola is not uh, really a destination for their um, colonial aims, um, they received signals from Liberia. Um, which is in trouble because it practices a form of uh, forced labor um, and uh, it also wages a war against uh, one of um, the tribes in the interior, the crew tribe. Uh, and Liberia, just to listeners, was one of the, the only two independent states um, in Africa, apart from Ethiopia. Um, it uh, was established essentially by the United States um, in 1848, uh, eight, um, and its elite uh, were um, descendants of freed uh, black slaves from 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 America. Uh, so this was sort of an independent country established uh, as part of this Back to Africa movement uh, under Monroe and uh, and other uh, U.S. presidents. Uh, so yes, so it's in trouble in the 1930s, um, and it's in danger of becoming a League of Nations mandate. Um, so the British and the Americans float uh, idea that uh, if Liberia does not take care of um, its uh, slavery problem, if Liberia does not uh, take care of its uh, financial problems, because of course uh, the prices of rubber are falling, so the loans that the U.S. Uh, has given to Liberia uh, cannot be so easily paid. Uh, so yes, yeah, so, so the British and the U.S. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, and, and they appeal to this uh, concept of international uh, trusteeship, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, taking, mm-hmm. taking this country under uh, this international umbrella uh, as a means of basically seizing control, right? Uh, of of uh, securing their interests. Uh, and the Liberians turn this around and they appeal to Poland and they essentially argue that uh, instead of appointing experts and um, uh, advisors um, from Britain or from the United States, uh, we're going to appoint um, uh, experts from Poland because Poland is a colonial power. Because, uh, but at the same time, it offers some, you know, technical assistance. Uh, so, so, so the Liberians themselves are sort of playing into this discourse, this Wilsonianist colonial discourse, to save themselves. And they, uh, right, and this opens the gate, of course, for the Poles who are aspiring to become a colonial power. This is exactly. So ironic, yeah. Uh, to, to, yeah. To, 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 to enter, to, uh, yeah. to try no, to. The, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think you have a lot of convincing evidence about that. And, and it's so curious to me because I, I'm reading shifts through the lenses of, of books like Mark Mazower or, or Susan Peterson. Um, those are some of the books I remember reading when I was trying to get a handle on 
what exactly this project of collective security really meant. If, if you finally got to the level of, of geography and cartography and, and maybe to the language as, as you describe it later on in your conclusion of, of technocrats and internationalists. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that's, that's one of the big parts I, I see in your work as a, as a connecting point to Catherine Siancha, um, because it, it's the language in many ways of this um, technocracy and, and capitalist modernity and internationalism that, that is also, correct me if I'm wrong, appropriated by decolonials and, and anti-colonials um, later on. I mean, those who become critics of this uh, somewhat chaotic, broader colonial agenda coming from Warsaw, um, you use the description toward the end in, in describing uh, this as, as kind of ideologically foggy. Um, and I wonder if I could tease you a little bit with that in, des- in describing the interwar colonial agenda. I mean, do you see these planners ultimately, whether they're in Peru or Angola or like Beck, in, including Palestine, then still abiding by the, this kind of technocracy, this project of modernity? This is a big kind of historiographical question um, for understanding Poland in the interwar period through a colonial lens. Right. Um so there is this underlying contradiction. Um, the, the Polish colonial media, as I call it, um, wishes to exploit pre-modern regions, or at least regions that it sees as pre-modern, um, under um, full of free land. Of course, there are people living on this land, but they like to overlook that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and they want these places to be located in warmer climates where uh, they can grow uh, raw materials that are expensive uh, for for the the Polish industry. So again, cotton, uh, coffee, um, um, rubber, etc. So so, so, so they're looking for pre-modernity abroad, but at home, of course, they want to attain modernity. Um, But but, but they're not, it's it's impossible because in order for these enterprises to be profitable abroad in Liberia, in Angola, in Peru, in Brazil, in Madagascar, um, the, the, the centers of settlement um, need to be connected to ports, to railroads, to, uh, to, to processing plants. Um, so, so, so on the one hand, they're, so, they're sort of hoping that they can establish these farms, these plantations, these trading posts um, in isolated locations uh, that had not been properly exploited by uh, the imperial powers. They, they hope this is sort of their way in, uh, that they will be granted these concessions because nobody else wants these regions uh, because they're so inaccessible. But on the other hand, it, it's sort of hopeless because uh, they cannot uh, successfully uh, extract coffee from Liberia if they don't build, if they don't build, uh, again, railways, if they don't have a functioning port where they can uh, load and unload uh, cargo. So uh, so there's this tension between this fascination with pre-modernity, which makes some sense uh, geopolitically, um, and uh, this, this wish to, to modernize at home. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you finally see a, continu- a continuity after or through 
1938 and 1939. I, I'm really, you know, fascinated uh, again with the, the sort of technocrats, people like geologists, geographers, but, um, you know, you have this part in The Last Resort, which is toward the end of your book, in which you're speaking about um, some continuities, I'd say, but the, the dispatching of refugees and the thousands of Polish refugees uh, in the work of the government um, in exile. So, I mean, do you see the, the Polish government in exile during the war taking over a lot of these kind of colonial aspirations, whether they're racial or, or Catholic, religious? I mean, what what exactly is 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 the, the history of this? Because obviously there is no foreign ministry, but there are people who are working um, for the Polish state in, in exile to try and figure out solutions in the global South and, and elsewhere for Polish um, pre-1939 citizens. What, what are those continuities? Right. So starting in 1936, uh, the foreign ministry under Josef Beck uh, takes over the responsibility for colonial projects from the Maritime and Colonial League. Um, and Beck is really interested in, uh, yes, on the one hand, continuing some of these projects uh, and making them profitable, uh, making them realistic, uh, making them modern also in Africa. But on the other hand, he's interested in technocratic solutions uh, to, to the problems of um, under-industrialization, overpopulation. Um, and he uh, and his experts, uh, Titus Komarnicki, uh, but also Tadeusz Brudziński, who is at the same time an advisor in Liberia, they come up with um, some proposals um, uh, w- w- which they express in different sort of committees uh, in Geneva, the Economic Committee and so on. And uh, one of them is introducing an international currency to purchase raw materials. Uh, Another is to uh, very radically break up uh, certain territories and sort of reassign them to different powers. Uh, So he comes up with all these uh, technocratic ideas that he hopes... uh, uh, might be better received by the international public, uh, of course, mostly the Anglo-Saxon public. Um, so, so, so he takes a step back and he tries to assess this more realistically and he uh, tries to reform the Wilsonian system in a sense um, by, by um, you know, appealing to uh, your Africa in this um, even more international um, um, context. So... After 1939, unfortunately, um, all of these farms in uh, southern Rhodesia, Mozambique, uh, Angola, um, had been reformed to be more economically profitable. Uh, But of course, that is not what the government in exile is mostly concerned with. They're still not meaningful. uh, You know, sure, they're profitable, but they don't economically for the war effort. Um, mm-hmm. it's, not their, but, it's not the first priority, right? It's at right. least at, not at that time, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so first of all, they, they need to cut off the financial flow. They, they cannot sponsor these places anymore. They have better mm-hmm. priorities. And uh, they cannot send refugees there because, again, they, they had yeah, not it's been... Yeah, impossible, right. Right. So, so they, they, they consider sending refugees there, including Jewish refugees, um, especially to Madagascar. Um, 
because they know that initially immigration and colonial policies had been so interconnected in this discourse, uh, but then they quickly realized, again, it, it's not possible. Uh, so again, this geopolitical shift, which is, of course, you know, the, the German invasion of Poland, makes these plans obsolete. So every time mm. the Polish yeah, elite right. is just about to, just about to draw some benefits from their ef colonial efforts, something global happens and it exactly yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good that's a perfect description I, I think actually that that's a good way to kind of wind down your big your big arguments because you know I mean I, I have this impression and it, it's almost something that I get from reading Larry Wolf um, carefully that that sometimes if you read Larry and talking about Wilson and goat herds and things like that that he's writing with a great sense of, of irony, which is coupled with, you know, the uh, catastrophe and, and disaster. And I wonder if you might say, you know, this is, is a final kind of way of introducing listeners to your writing. Um, you, make the, you make a comment toward the end, and, and I'm going to hold you to it, about colon Polish colonial aspirations as being, quote, anachronistic, or at least misguided and, and misplaced. And I, you know, I think there's a reason for this. You're, you're talking about fantasies and dreams and, and maybe delusions. Um, but do you think historians will, will pursue that, that line of thinking? I guess I, there's so much work that I suppose can be done after reading your own research and comparing, say, Palestine to Madagascar or Liberia to Ethiopia this is really a question for you about style and tone, and, and this is something that I kind of detected within your argument. So I want to hear what you have to say. Right. So on the one hand, I do consider these plans misguided to be uh, manifestations of nationalism, of anti-Semitism. We haven't talked about the so-called Jewish question, uh, because, of course, that would open Pandora's box most likely. Um, so, so they are um, something to be criticized and to be uh, to be abhorred even, right? Uh, but at the same time, they are reflections of the world order. Um, there are genuine problems that, that Poland faces in the interwar period, and it's plausible in the context uh, of this colonial era to think that. Uh, colonization um, with emigrants or um, gaining concessions uh, of economic nature uh, might uh, might uh, option. Uh, so I try not to completely uh, uh, dismiss these plans are, are as detached from reality. Uh, of course they're fantasies, of course they're uh, races, the phantasmagoria, especially in Angola. I mean, I have a whole section about sort of uh, the Polish uh, intellectual subscribing scores, uh, uh, taking advantage of uh, of the indigenous and so on. Um, uh, but there's more to it, right? There, there, there's this engagement in Liberia, right? Uh, this attempt to pose as an anti-colonial power. Uh, all these attempts in Geneva, the League of Nations, to come up with um, uh, technocratic uh, ways of uh, getting out of currency blocks, right? Uh, getting out of this illiberal system of tariffs, uh, 
back to some standards, if not the gold standard, it's something else. Uh, so, so, you know, I think that the future historians need to look at this and sort of um, uh, separate the wheat from the right? Um, be, be critical, be condemning, but not... Uh, um, but not uh, not dismiss the whole uh, the whole story as uh, as irrelevant because it is very relevant. It it really shows um, that uh, you know being jealous of one's resources uh, of one's privilege uh, was uh, the domain of great powers during the interwar period, despite the existence of the League of Nations, despite um, uh, all you know all the Wilsonian discourse. Uh, and when uh, when a country like Poland tried to to join the club, it was rejected every single uh, time. Um, and you know, it, it's yeah. So I'll leave it it's, at that. It's a it's a and it's a fair critique, I think, of, of Poland's European project as well. So I mean, to insist and and to actually really unearth, as you do in your book, the discourses that are still persistent in this form of. Eastern colonialism or Western colonialism, however we call it, ideologically constituted. So um, we are absolutely running out of time. And this is the last two minute question. If you can suggest a couple of books for our listeners and talk a little in a minute or so about your current um, research, what you are doing now, Piotr. Of course. So um, the first book that I need to mention and recommend to uh, all of your is of course uh, Lenny A. Urena uh, Valerio's uh, book *Colonial Fantasies: Imperial Realities*, in which she really tackles uh, the connection between German imperialism and Polish colonial fantasy, and how uh, they uh, dovetailed each other. Um, how um, the German imperial project in Europe really triggered Polish colonial fantasies still in the 19th century. My uh, book is uh, almost a continuation of Lenny's book uh, chronologically. Um, there are many affinity works, and uh, I would uh, even read um, her book first and mine, mine second, because um, <laughs> because she really lays out. Um, it's a brilliant the, book. <laughs> the intellectual, yes, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and uh, another book that uh, uh, I uh, pay uh, homage to is, of course. Uh, my former advisor's Catherine um, Ciancia's book uh, on Civilization's Edge, uh, in which she brilliantly examines uh, the role of second-year actors um, in um, Volynia, which was a Polish uh, province uh, during the interwar period, how these uh, second-year actors constructed um, um, a discourse about civilization and about uh, you know hierarchies. Vis-à-vis uh, -vis Ukrainians, Jews, Belarusians, um, and other groups. Uh, uh, so, 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 an absolutely uh, fantastic work, um, and uh, a really uh, uh, by uh, Johan Biller about uh, Polish refugees in British East Africa uh, in World War II, which uh, takes that chronology, uh, you know, um, farther right uh, into into the 1940s, of course, um, and and and. Uh, Beller examines how um, Polish refugees um, were uh, both white and non-white in the British colonial setting, uh, and, and and how you know how the British colonial officials felt very uneasy about the presence of uh, quote unquote poor whites 
uh, in uh, their their colonies at the time. So yes, yeah, so these are the, the that's per- that's uh, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And thirty seconds, what what you're doing now? Right, uh, I am interested in uh, communist Poland's uh, attitude toward decolonization. Uh, I really want whether uh, the, the Polish foreign policy during the so-called thaw, which coincided with the year of Africa, 1960, um, was um, whether, wow. whether whether yeah. the Poles were working uh, just hand in hand with the Soviets, promoting decolonization movements, or they had their own agenda. So this is. Um, this is uh, something that I'm working on right now. I I will read that, Piotr, as I've read this avidly. I just want to say congratulations on this book. And really, I hope our listeners here at New Books Network and, and New Books European Studies and New Books Polish Studies um, read it. The book is by historian Piotr Puchowski. It is called Poland in a Colonial World Order, Adjustments and Aspirations. 1918 to 1939, just published by Routledge 2022 for its series, uh, which I'd also very highly recommend, Routledge Histories of Central and Eastern Europe. Thank you so much, Piotr, for joining me here at New Books Network on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Once again, this was a great honor. Thank you. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.